Take your Bibles out and turn with me back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7, as we continue looking in chapter 6 at the Lord's Prayer, commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. I do need to tell you probably John 17 should be called the Lord's Prayer. Because in John 17, that's where Jesus is actually praying for his disciples all down through the ages, including you. Matthew chapter 6 may be better called the model prayer. Because in Matthew 6, Jesus is teaching us how to pray. But I know I probably won't undo centuries of it being called the Lord's Prayer so anyway, we, we refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word, and we will look this morning. Uh, we'll read beginning in verse 5. Jesus said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Lord, as uh, Carrie has just sung to ask you to search our hearts, God, we pray that you would indeed do that today. Lord, the greatest privilege we have is to go into your presence. We know as we go there, we are able to because of Jesus' sacrifice for sin on the cross that opened the way into the Holy of Holies. And the Bible is telling us that Jesus is there even now as our advocate and interceding for us. What a privilege to take all of our cares, all of our burdens, all of our worries to you in prayer. Lord, forgive us that we oftentimes cut off so much of our communication from you and we think that we can go through life and just do life our way on our own. Lord, forgive us for not depending on you daily. It's only by your grace that we stand. Lord, we thank you for this second section of the Lord's Prayer that we look at today that uh, will teach us about you supplying our needs. Thank you that you do so according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Lord, looking at this prayer, I pray that we would be people of prayer. It's not something we would just talk about or study, 
But, Lord, it's something that we would do as the people of God. You've promised to bless the prayers of your people. May we be a praying people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned today, we return to this this subject of prayer. For two weeks already, we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer. Now, folks, I think we, we all realize that we need to be a praying people. There is power in prayer because in prayer, we need to understand that we are talking to the sovereign God of the universe. Do we realize that? And the Bible says, unbelievably, that the sovereign God of this universe hears you and he hears me as we pray. That is the confidence that you and I can have. Now, as we go before God in prayer, we need to be careful that we're not trying to to manipulate God to our way. Read a funny little story this week about a little fella, probably only five or six years old, that felt like he could manipulate God to get what he wanted. It was Christmas time. And he was sitting down at the at the uh, kitchen table and he was writing a letter to God telling God everything that he wanted for Christmas and he said, God, I've been a good boy for six months now. Well, his conscience got the better of him so he struck out six months. He said, well, maybe three months. And so he wrote three months in, and then his conscience still bothered him, and he struck that out, and he wrote in two weeks. Well, he thought about that a minute, and he struck that out. And he got up, and he walked over to a little credenza in front of the window where his mom had set up a big nativity set, and He looked there at the nativity and there was Mary and Joseph and the wise men and all the animals and the baby Jesus and he decided to grab Mary. He grabbed Mary out of the nativity scene and he put Mary in his his pocket and he walked back over to the kitchen table and he picked up the pen and sat down and he said, Dear Jesus, I've got your mother. If you ever want to see her again. (laughs) We don't have to try to manipulate God. Now, without trying to complicate prayer, I do want us to realize, though, that we've got to pray correctly. There are biblical instructions on prayer that ensure that our praying is honoring to God. There's some real dangers to avoid. Not praying is certainly a danger. Now that would reveal a laziness in our devotion. Remember James said, you have not because you ask not. Folks, in the Bible there are blessings that God has tied directly to prayer. And if we don't pray, we'll miss those blessings. Not just laziness, but A failure to pray could also reveal human pride. We think we're just fine as we are and we don't need God in our day-to-day lives. What's that? That's human pride. 
a life without prayer could also reflect a heart of unbelief. And we don't even believe God. That's exactly what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18. He said in a parable about prayer, he said, when the Son of Man returns though, will he even find faith on the earth? In other words, it takes faith to pray. Well, not praying, that's a danger. Praying incorrectly is another danger. We can run the risk of praying selfishly. James and James 4 writes about that. When we pray, we ask for things that we can then turn around and consume on our own lust for pleasure and things in this world. We can pray for things outside of the will of God. We can pray for things that would be a detriment to the cause of Christ. We can pray for things that God knows in the long run would hurt you or me. Aren't you glad that God doesn't answer every prayer that we make of Him? He doesn't answer it the way we want Him to, that is. Now, with that being said, let's continue in this pattern for effective prayer in Matthew 6. We, we looked last week, really two weeks ago, started looking at the prohibition or how not to pray. We saw that we're not to pray in order to simply be seen by men. We're not to pray with vain babbling, thinking that we've got to dial up just the right combination of words. And if we don't dial up just the right combination of words, God isn't going to answer our prayer. That's how the pagans looked at prayer. We also saw the prescription or how to pray. We began looking last week that we are to pray for God's name to be hallowed, for God's name to be reverenced and held in the highest esteem, for God's kingdom to come, and for God's will to be done. And all of those that we looked at last week had to do with God's interests. May thy name be hallowed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Folks, we, we see so many prayers in the Bible and we see that that was a priority in the saints of God who prayed. They were interested in the glory of God. It, it's no wonder that prayer in the Bible was so powerful because the saints of God praying in the Bible were concerned about the glory of God. I think Solomon's prayer when he dedicated the temple would be an example of that. And so we're to emulate that. But that doesn't mean as we pray about God's interest, God's name to be hallowed, God's kingdom to come, God's will to be done, that doesn't mean that we are to ignore man's need. After all, we still have needs and we have a heavenly Father who cares for us. And so today I want us to continue looking at the prescription for prayer. Look at those elements that have to do with man's needs. Again, I want you to notice the shift in pronouns. Now instead of thy, 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 it's changed now to our, our, our. You look through the outline that I've given you there and you first of all see that, that Jesus said we are to make petition for daily provision. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. 
Now, folks, this petition can cover all of our physical needs. Martin Luther commented that this petition for God to provide our daily bread could likewise encompass a healthy body, good weather, a home, a family, as well as food. I think Martin Luther is dead on target by saying that. It's utterly absurd what the ancient church father Jerome said many years ago about this petition. Jerome said this petition, give us this day our daily bread, is that God would supply the bread each week that the church needed to celebrate the Eucharist or communion. Where would you even get something like that? I like what another writer says here. When we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we're asking for more than bread, although the petition certainly includes that. He says bread is a symbol word that stands for all of our physical needs. Bread gives us strength to work, to walk, to dig, to type at the computer. Bread gives us stamina that drives us to close a business deal. Bread gives the teacher energy to handle restless children. Bread stands for the roof over our heads and the clothes on our backs. It stands for the car to give us basic transportation or subway money to get us to work. Bread stands for fuel oil in the winter, for air conditioning in the summer, for physical healing so that we can work. Again, I think that writer is dead on. This first petition is that God would provide for all of our daily physical needs. Folks, if our daily necessities were not met, it would be hard to focus on anything else. It'd be hard to talk to you about going on a mission trip or giving to missions if you didn't even have your basic daily necessities. And so as we read this first petition, we we need to understand that, and we also need to understand the differences in audiences. German theologians popularized a phrase, the Sitzenleben, the, the, the original life setting of a story, the context of a story. And if we're going to really understand that story correctly and interpret it correctly, we, need to, we needed to understand what that original audience was facing. And I think this is a petition that the Sitzenleben, we certainly need to to bring that into play and we need to understand that because Jesus' audience in ancient times, the common day laborers, they lived a hand-to-mouth existence. You worked that day maybe for a wealthy landowner. At the end of the day, you collected your wages. And that's why in the book of James, James cautioned the uh, wealthy landowners not to withhold the the wages of the poor man because he he would get off work and he would take his wages and he would go to the market and he would buy what his family needed for existence that very next day. And if they didn't get that daily wage, they wouldn't have provision for their family. We don't even understand that in Western culture today, do we? We go to our pantries and 
thank the good Lord our pantries are full. We go to our refrigerator and our refrigerators are full. We've got such abundance, it's, it's hard for us to grasp what a powerful petition this particular one would have been. One writer said, in America at this hour, there's plenty, but, but this is the only nation or one of the only nations where there is plenty. Yes, even a surplus today. Famine stalks this world today in many parts. The third horseman of the apocalypse is racing even now across the land. We are living on an earth that has the curse of sin upon it. From the day that Adam sinned, God said to him, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, as a result of our abundance, for again, for which we can be very grateful in many ways, there's nonetheless a downside, isn't there? And that downside is that you and I have lost our sense of daily dependence on God. There's a false sense of security where we assume that we're always going to be citizens of a land of plenty and we're going to have everything that we need and even some of our greeds. We just assume that. But folks, you and I need to understand that it all belongs to God and if it were not for His mercy and grace and provision, we could lose it all. I don't care how secure you think you are in this world, apart from God's sustaining grace, there is no real security. We're in an economy where we're told that one in every 1,100 homes now, it's better than it was five years ago, one in every 1,100 homes is now in foreclosure. Are part of the top 10 states in the entire country where foreclosures are taking. We're not as bad as places like Nevada, somewhere like that, but the Carolinas top 10 for foreclosures. Folks, a job loss, a loss of benefits or an accident could instantly drive any family into bankruptcy. If you're coming on Wednesday nights as part of our prayer sheet, on Wednesday nights you turn over that middle page and you see at the bottom that inside flap, you see all those people, I think there's about 12 or 15 of them now that we're praying for in our congregation that are looking for jobs. I'm sure there's some things they don't take for granted anymore. I think of the woman in, in, in our biblical recorder, our Baptist State paper, just last week in an interview, she was talking about she and her husband. They live down in the coast of North Carolina. They moved down here, I believe it was three years ago, from, uh, from Long Island, New York, and they didn't buy flood insurance because their insurance agent told them, you're not in a flood zone, you don't need it, so we're not going to cover that. She said, everything we have now is gone in the recent South Carolina floods. And she and her husband were talking in the interview about how grateful they were to see Southern Baptist disaster relief teams show up in those yellow t-shirts and yellow hats 
she said, I don't know what we would do without you guys. Instantly, we can lose everything that we have. And so, folks, you and I need to remember where our provision comes from. If our pantries are full, if our homes are warm in the winter and our stomachs are full, then let this first petition be a reminder to us of who deserves the credit. God deserves the credit. James says in James 1, 17 and 18 that every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights in whom is no shifting shadows. God is constant in His love and His provision. I think of how God warned Israel through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, He said, When you go into the land that I'm carrying you, and you get in that land, and you begin building your farms and your businesses and your homes, and you begin harvesting all your crops and all your livestock, you have everything that you need. He said, You better be careful lest you forget the Lord your God. He said, it's the Lord your God who has given you all of this provision. And if you forget the Lord your God, God said to him, I'm telling you, I will make you go the way of all the other nations that I've destroyed before you. We need to remember God. Somebody once said that one difference between believers and unbelievers is that believers recognize where our provision comes from and we give thanks unbelievers he said can be like pigs that gorge themselves on the acorns underneath an oak tree but they never look up to see from where the acorns have fallen Adrian Rogers told the story one time about a poor woman lived in a little apartment building, thin walls. You could hear what your neighbor was doing and she lived there in that apartment. She was always crying out to God for provision. There was an atheist lived next door and he would hear her pray and he'd make fun of her. One day he heard her crying out for groceries. He said, I'm going to teach this old woman a lesson. He went and bought her bagfuls of groceries and set those bagfuls of groceries out at her front door. She opened her door. She was shouting hallelujah. She brought all those groceries in. He heard her praying, giving thanks to God for, for those groceries. And that atheist went next door and knocked. And that widow woman answered the door. He said, you old fool. I've been hearing you praying and thanking God for these groceries. God didn't give you those groceries. I did. She said, oh, no, sir, that's where you got it wrong. God gave me those groceries even if he used the devil to deliver them. <laughs> so this first petition is a reminder to us that we're fully dependent upon God. Notice the second one. 
confession of sin. He says there, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, if the previous petition addressed our physical needs, this one addresses our spiritual needs. You see, man is not simply a a physical being. We are body, soul, and spirit. We have spiritual needs just like we have physical needs. And surely right at the top of the list of our spiritual needs is what? The need to be forgiven. Because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. We're in trouble unless God takes care of our sin problem. You know, a lot of people drive themselves crazy because they just, they, they, they go through life and they just feel like there are people who are literally, who some psychologists will tell you are literally being treated because they feel like they cannot be forgiven. But what's the Bible say? That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, folks, look at this word debts here. It's one of the New Testament words for sin. Now, there are many, there are lots of words for sin in, in the Bible. Perhaps the most common is that word harmatia, and it emphasizes that you and I have missed the mark. You've no doubt, all of us have heard that illustration before of somebody with the bow and arrow shooting that arrow out and it goes astray and it misses the mark. It doesn't hit the bullseye. That's one of the more popular biblical words for sin. We've missed the mark. Well, there's another word that has to do with trespass and it emphasizes that we have crossed the line that God drew in the sand for us, even if we crossed it unintentionally. Nevertheless, we've trespassed. Then there's still another word for intentional sins where somebody knows the laws of God and thumbs their nose at God's commands. Then there's a word that has to do with lawlessness and rebellion. And then there's this word right here that has to do with debts and it points out that you and I are debtors to God you owe God a debt you can never pay and I do as well we're debtors to God but God has graciously paid it in Christ I want to ask you to jot down 2 Corinthians 5 21 that's a verse that you ought to memorize 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, folks, that's that's a verse worth memorizing. Amen? God will forgive us if we turn to him and admit our guilt. 
Folks, this petition is a recognition that even as believers, we must constantly depend upon God for forgiveness of our sins. There's a tension in the Bible that I want you to see. As believers, we know that we are forgiven and reconciled to God. And Romans 8.1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But then also the Bible reminds the forgiven that we are to live holy lives. In 1 Peter 1, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's God's plan for you. Paul points it out in Romans chapter 6 that those who are forgiven of all of their debts against God are to walk in holiness as we submitted the members of our body at one time to unrighteousness. Now we're to submit ourselves to righteousness. Folks, if you have a casual attitude about sin, there's a problem. In fact, if you have a casual attitude towards sin, it may even indicate that you're not a believer to begin with. But with all that said and done, we know, because the Bible tells us that this side of heaven, we're not going to be perfect. And so John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, he says, I write these things to you, little children, that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so every day we need to go before Him and we need to confess our sins. The moment something, the moment the Holy Spirit brings something to your attention or to my, my attention that we've done wrong, the moment, folks, we need to go to God in confession of that. We need forgiveness. And there's tremendous power when we're confessed up and clean before God. Henry Blackaby, the writer of Experience in God, tells about a mission organization in 1985 that that assigned a family to work in a predominantly Muslim city. And after years of work, they only had five churches, five small churches planted in that area. Some felt like it was time to pull out of that area and maybe go somewhere else. But not all of them were convinced of that. Some said, you know what, we need to meet together and we need to seek the face of God. We need to get on our knees before God and find out what's going on. And so that little group of believers got on their knees. They had an all-night prayer meeting. An all-night prayer meeting. And it became very clear to all of them that there there was sin in the camp, so to speak, that there were things in their lives and there were things in their churches going on that they knew were not pleasing to God. And they confessed it all and they, they wanted to get right with God. Revival broke out in that little group and over the next three and a half years, 132,000 people made professions of faith. 
And when that family went home for furlough in 1989, instead of five small churches, there were 156 thriving congregations in that area. Confession. There's blessing in being a clean vessel. Now I want you to notice he goes on here to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So do I, do I earn, is this verse teaching that, that I can earn God's forgiveness if I forgive others? No. What, what it's pointing out is what the Bible points out in so many places in the New Testament that if we have been forgiven, we will forgive others. Because we have God's nature in us through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And if, if we know of God's forgiveness, part of salvation, it's just natural that we turn around and forgive us. If we can't forgive other people, it's probably an indication that we ourselves haven't been forgiven. That was Jesus' point in the parable in Matthew 18 when, when Peter said, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? And the Lord went on to tell this story about that servant who owed that king like $20 million in today's monetary value. And the king wrote it off, forgave it all. That servant left the king's presence with gratitude but went out and found a fellow servant who only owed him $20. And the Greek New Testament says he throttled him. He grabbed him around the throat and choked him and said, you're going to pay every penny you owe and would not forgive that guy $20. The same guy that had just been forgiven $20 million would not forgive $20. And you remember it didn't turn out so good for him. The master who had forgiven him said, take him and Throw him to the jailers. He'll be there until he pays every last penny that he owed. Point was, he didn't have the heart of the master. This portion of the Lord's Prayer is saying, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. As Christians, we're supposed to forgive anybody who has a trespass against us. And there's that assumption that we will do that as believers. So, Father, forgive us likewise. As R.T. France points out in his commentary, true forgiveness is not just a one-way sort of thing where the believer is the only one to receive forgiveness. To receive it means that we must also be ready to grant it. And then lastly here, there's a petition for divine protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, there's a red flag that goes up. James 1.13 tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone well the word here can also mean trial it's a neutral word whether it's a trial or a temptation and oftentimes it's the context that determines how we're to interpret it well is is this even saying if we look at it as a 
a trial, not a temptation. Is this saying, God, don't, don't lead us into any trials? No. The Bible points out God may use trials to strengthen you. So what's it saying? Commentators basically say it, 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 it's telling us, Lord, do not allow me to step into any situation today that is over my head that you know I couldn't handle. And if I got into that situation, the evil one would have an opportunity in my life. It's a prayer that recognizes that we have an evil one, Satan, and our, in our own strength, we can't battle him. At the same time, God knows our limits. And, and so we petition God, since God is aware of our limits, He'll not allow us to venture into situations where the evil one could gain an advantage. It's like 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Another verse you ought to write down and memorize. It says, No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. That's a verse we can lay down right alongside of this, this petition right here. So we're to trust God that He'll only give us what we can handle because He knows our limits. Now folks, I want you to think about something. As we look at the Lord's Prayer, again, the first three dealt with God's interest. God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. The last three deals with our. Our bread, our daily bread, forgive us of our, our debts and lead us not into temptation. Notice the balance here. You go to church prayer meetings and what do you hear oftentimes in a church prayer meeting? You hear an organ recital, don't you? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Lord, touch his heart, touch his kidneys, touch his liver, heal him. All we hear is an organ recital. Now, is that unimportant? No, that's these last three petitions. But the Lord's Prayer is a model for us that our praying is to be much more comprehensive than that. Like the prayer that I opened up with reading out of Colossians 1 today, Paul was praying in addition to their physical needs that God would show them His will and knowing His will that they would do His will and that they would bear fruit and that they would be a grateful people. The Lord's Prayer serves as a model for you and me. Again, I don't think the intention is that we just recite it every day. Wrote memory. I don't think that's the point. But as I go to the Lord in my own prayer time, am I praying for the glory of God's name? Am I praying for His kingdom to come, His will to be done? And I, Am I praying for His work being done on the earth through the church, the bride of Christ? Am I praying for us in our spiritual venture that God has called us to? Am I praying for the lost? Am I praying for Christians to bear fruit in their Christian lives? And then in addition to that, am I praying for our daily needs? You see, it ensures that there's a balance 
in our prayer time. That our prayer time doesn't simply become about greeds. God, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that. It teaches us a greater maturity about our prayers. I want you to think of your own prayer life this morning and your own life in general. I want you to remember this week as you go to God in prayer, remember specifically where your blessings come from. I'm assuming every single person I'm looking at this morning, every single one of us, your pantries probably are full. If they're not, would you please let us know? There are people here. We want to help as a church. But I'm assuming that everybody's pantries are probably full. But what you and I need to recognize this week is where that blessing comes from. You say, oh, it comes from me. I worked for it. Yeah, you might have worked for it, but who gave you the intelligence and the strength and the ability to even have a job? By the way, who gave you the job itself? You can trace it all back to God. You and I may not have to ask for daily bread in the same sense Jesus' audience did, but are you grateful that God has given it to you anyway? Why not make gratitude more of a part of your prayer life this week in terms of your earthly provision that you have? Maybe there's somebody out here I'm talking to that's got sin in your life. Maybe there's some stronghold. You need forgiveness. You need cleansing. Before you're going to really see God work in your life, maybe the way He did at one time earlier in your life, maybe there's some sin that needs to be dealt with and confessed and repented of. Why don't you target that area of your life this week in prayer? Maybe there's an area of your life, things you're venturing into, and you're weak. and You're not sure you can handle what all's going to be involved in it. And you need God to keep you out of any situation where the evil one would have a stronghold into your life. Won't you pray this week that God would direct your steps so you would walk the right path so you wouldn't fall into the hands of the evil one, but you'd stay on course for Jesus Christ. Again, use this prayer as a breakdown, a model, so that we're not just always going before God and asking for the same things over and over again when, when all we're concerned about, God, give me this, I need this, give me this. And then lastly, I want to remind you what I've been reminding you of. Only a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ can truly, can truly have a powerful prayer life the way the New Testament's talking about it. Because see, folks, the Bible is very clear in showing us it is only through Christ that man has entry into the Holy of Holies. When Christ died on the cross and that veil was torn in two, what did it symbolize? 
The writer of Hebrews is telling us that symbolized that Jesus Christ walked right into the Holy of Holies to present before God the sin sacrifice that would forgive all of your sins and my sins. And he opened the way so that you and I as believers in Christ can go into the very presence of God. So if you don't know Christ, you don't have that entryway. You don't have that access. Not only are you lost eternally if you die in that condition, but in your daily life right now, you can't even go before God and have a powerful prayer life because you don't know His Son, Jesus Christ, who made the way to God possible. If that's you, I'd love to pray with you about that this morning and show you what the Scripture says about inviting Christ into your life and Christ being the Lord and Savior of your life.